service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia, are insane. In January of 1947, her mutilated body was found literally cut in two in a vacant lot in Los Angeles. Her murder was one of the most gruesome in Hollywood history. More than seven decades later, it remains one of the most notorious unsolved homicides in the country. It happened at a time when corruption within the ranks of the LAPD was so severe, it was impossible to tell the good guys from the bad guys. Hundreds of suspects were investigated. Dozens of confessions were made. Over the years, the case has gotten hot and then cold again. Speculation into motive and method has been endless. And it continues today. Despite contrary belief, Elizabeth Short was not an actress and therefore did not make great films. But the web of secrets, lies, rumors, accusations, and innuendo that have followed her tragic death is the stuff that great films are made of. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Guido Ciccolini performing Elegy in 1918. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Walter Lang's When My Baby Smiles at Me. And why would I play you that specific slice of burlesque to Broadway cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on January 14, 1949. And that was the day that the LAPD let a prime suspect in the Black Dahlia case walk free on the two-year anniversary of her death. On this episode, police corruption, unsolved homicides, a web of secrets, lies, and rumors in Hollywood's Black Dahlia. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season three, Hollywoodland. Officer Jones scanned the crowd at Wolfie's restaurant. Place was a magnet for Miami octogenarians. Regulars noshed on triple-decker sandwiches, pastrami, chicken livers, bottomless cups of diner-grade coffee. Jones nursed his own cup. The coffee was shit, but he needed a reason to sit at a table alone and not stick out like a throbbing asshole. He wasn't hungry, so shitty coffee it was. Jones was tailing a guy. He had a photo and he had a name, Jack Sand. 
The guy's old lady was a waitress at Wolfie's, and he either really liked visiting her at work or he had bad taste in coffee. Jones didn't know exactly why he was tailing Jack Sand. He was sent there on Chief Horrell's orders. And when the chief told you to do something, you did it. Even if it meant traveling way outside your jurisdiction, like thousands of miles. Miami was a long way from Los Angeles. Didn't matter. Jones was a member of the LAPD's elite gangster squad. Gangster squad could do what they wanted and go where they wanted. Well, at least where the chief wanted them to go. The gangster squad was a group of supposedly incorruptible LA cops, which of course was more than a little bit ironic since at the time of the group's inception, the late 1940s, the LAPD was one of, if not the most corrupt institutions in America. The LAPD was so deep into crooked symbiotic relationships with both organized crime and the city's power elite that it is difficult to explain the depths of the corruption. But I'll give it a shot. LAPD gave zero fucks when it came to the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. LAPD was the law. They mercilessly beat suspects. Rubber hoses worked best since they didn't leave visible marks. They were always on the take. They stuffed their own pockets with cash from politicians, lawyers, businesses, and of course, the mob. The entire reason that the squad was formed in the first place was the 86 the rotten relationship between mob boss Mickey Cohen and LAPD. But LA was so goddamn crooked that the beat cops walked their streets on a tilt. A criminal lawyer once said, in Chicago, the gangsters paid off the police, but the gangsters did the job. In Los Angeles, the police were the gangsters. And so, theoretically, so-called good cops like Officer Jones were supposed to be above the bullshit, trustworthy. Not that LAPD brass trusted them. As a precaution, gangster squad members were often put on an assignment without any enlightening information as to why they were doing what they were doing. Which is how Officer Jones found himself choking down Miami's worst coffee at Wolfie's while keeping tabs on the tall, lanky 27-year-old who called himself Jack Sand. And if Jones didn't know why he was there, then the rest of Miami didn't either. Shit, they didn't even know his real name. Officer Jones, please. That was an alias. Everyone used an alias in 1948 if they were smart. Cops and perps alike. Naturally, it came as no surprise when the cop using an alias figured out that the guy he was tailing wasn't actually named Jack Sand. The eureka moment happened in Sand's apartment. Jones staked the place out when he wasn't at Wolfie's and deduced a daily rhythm. He slipped inside when the coast was clear. No warrant, no legal right to be in there, no problem. There was mail on the coffee table. None of the envelopes said Jack Sand. Instead, they were all addressed to Leslie Dwayne Dillon. Then he saw it, sitting on the dining table, a copy of True Detective magazine, the latest edition, October 1948. He flipped it open to find the cover story article, the one about LA's most notorious unsolved murder, the same article that was planted in the issue by the LAPD's chief psychologist, Dr. Joseph Paul DeRiver, as bait to help nab an elusive suspect. The margins of the magazine pages were full of scribbles, the rantings of an obsessive, of someone who knew even more than the article laid bare. The pages of the magazine were worn, like they had been read and reread and read again and agonized over for days. And then it hit Jones. 
the reason why he had traveled all the way to the other side of the goddamn country to tail some lanky bastard in a diner. He wasn't just a guy, he was the guy. The guy who had looted the Los Angeles Police Department for almost two years. The guy responsible for the most gruesome murder in LA history. Jones made the call back to Los Angeles. They had their man. And that man was Jack Sand, AKA Leslie Dwayne Dillon, prime suspect numero uno in the brutal killing of Elizabeth Short. Elizabeth Short was originally from Medford, Massachusetts, but found herself, like a lot of men and women in their early 20s in post-World War II America, out west. The sun shone brighter out there, and so did the future. But for Elizabeth Short, there was no future out west. Los Angeles wasn't all silver screen dreams and big Tinseltown breaks. The Los Angeles that Elizabeth Short discovered was populated by drunks, junkies, rat-infested motels, syphilitic ex-cons, and petty thieves. On January 15, 1947, a housewife pushing her toddler in a stroller for their morning walk happened upon Elizabeth Short's body, a vacant lot in the Lamert Park section of Los Angeles. The housewife saw what looked to be a mannequin on its back in the overgrown parcel of land. As she got closer, however, she noticed the dense cluster of flies that hovered like a black cloud was no mannequin. The woman ran to the nearest house and screamed for someone to call the police. The cops had never seen anything like it. They had to look away every few minutes just to stave off the nausea. Elizabeth Short's mutilated body had literally been severed in two at the waist. The two halves were placed about 12 inches apart and looked like they had been posed. Her arms were placed above her head and her legs were spread apart. Her face had been given a Glasgow smile, both sides slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears. Her entire body was completely drained of blood, and there were chunks of flesh cut and stuffed into her rectum, and a rose tattoo was cut from her leg and stuffed inside her vagina. Seriously, do not do a Google image search for Black Dahlia unless you're fully prepared for a bad night's sleep. But before they even had the chance to put Elizabeth Short's body on the autopsy table, the press descended on the murder site. The story took on a life of its own with the papers and the public. Elizabeth Short's tragic death was sensationalized from the start. The day after her body was found, the LA Examiner peddling a story of sleaze and sex sold more copies than it had on any other day in its history with the exception of when it announced the Allied victory in World War II. A feeding frenzy of lies, innuendo, and rumor followed for 22 months, including accusations of police press and district attorney cover-ups and incompetence. Hundreds of suspects were considered, dozens of confessions were recorded, but nothing that led the cops to the guy. Until now, Officer Jones, Dr. Joseph Paul DeRiver and Chief Hurrell were all sure they had the guy they had been looking for. He'd taken the bait, the bait being the magazine article in True Detective. Leslie Dwayne Dillon, under the nom de farce of Jack Sand, had been exchanging letters with Dr. DeRiver about that article. Dillon claimed he knew the murder suspect and further claimed that he could help track him down. Now, this wasn't the first time LAPD had been fed that line. 
But what really got Dr. DeRiver interested in Dylan as a suspect was that in his correspondence, he had included a sketch of a crosshatch pattern that drew eerie similarities to the crisscross lacerations found on Elizabeth Short's pelvis and hip. And Dylan peddled a wild theory that the killer had moved parts of Short's body into places where they didn't belong. The cops hadn't let any of those hard details slip to the press. The only person who would know such things was the one who did it. But when Officer Jones and Dr. DeRiver got Leslie Dwayne Dillon to agree to a meetup in Palm Springs, neutral ground, Dillon continued to insist that he was not the killer. It was another guy, a guy named Jeff Connors. Dr. DeRiver knew better. Jeff Connors was just another alias, like Jack Sand. Maybe a figment of Dylan's imagination. Maybe a split personality. There was no other guy. Leslie Dwayne Dillon was the other guy. And the LAPD staff psychiatrist was gonna do what he had to do to prove it. It is generally assumed that since Elizabeth Short relocated from Massachusetts to California in her late teens that, naturally, she was pursuing a life of fame and fortune. That's not entirely true. She was bedazzled by the glamour of it all, as many young people were then and still are today. She wondered what it would be like to model or to step onto a Hollywood set. There was and remains an allure to show business that some people cannot resist. But Elizabeth Short never appeared on television or the silver screen. She may never have even dreamt about life as a movie star. Still, she makes sense as the subject of a Hollywoodland episode because her murder not only defined the time she died in, it had the movie capital of the world and the grip of paranoia and fear not unlike the way the Charles Manson murders put the town on edge some 20 odd years later. Why was Elizabeth in California in the first place if she had no interest in chasing dreams of movie stardom? Because California was a mysterious place all the way on the other side of the country, and it had the potential to make some of her other dreams come true. Elizabeth Short was born in Hyde Park, an upmarket neighborhood of Boston in 1924, and grew up in Medford, Massachusetts, a Boston suburb. She was one of five daughters. Her father lost most of the family's money in the Great Crash of 1929, and shortly thereafter, his car was found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge. It was assumed that the stress of financial ruin had simply been too much to bear, and as a result, he had flung himself to his death in the icy waters of the River Charles. The Short family mourned the loss of its patriarch, and for years Elizabeth grieved and wished that her father hadn't been taken from her so soon. It would be 12 years before Elizabeth Short learned that her father's death had been a lie. When Elizabeth was 18 years old, her mother received a letter from a ghost. Elizabeth's father was not dead after all, but very much alive and living a new life in Vallejo, California, near San Francisco. No doubt swept up in a whirlwind of emotions, Elizabeth decided to go west to chase a dream. The dream of her absent father, who had ditched his family so many years ago. 
When she arrived, she found no dream, just a long lost dad who was as foreign to her as the Bay Area weather. Her father was from a generation that saw a value in hard work, nine to five work, and didn't understand daydreams about modeling and movie stars. They were incompatible. Elizabeth moved on. The next few years were tumultuous. She was arrested for underage drinking at a bar in Santa Barbara, and she went crawling back to her East Coast family for a spell. She met an Army Air Force officer in Florida who asked her to marry him. Elizabeth said yes, but less than a week before the end of World War II, he was killed in a plane crash. She found her way back out to California, and this time to LA, where she worked as a waitress and rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. Her landlord, a middle-aged skeeve named Mark Hansen, straddled the worlds of legitimate business and criminal underworld. He owned a dozen movie theaters around town. He also ran a burlesque review inside the Florentine Gardens. Elizabeth was one of many young women who sat on Hansen's not-so-proverbial casting couch to be groomed for an exploitative career in tassels. She frequently rebuffed Hansen's sexual overtures. Hansen frequently reminded her that he was tight with Jimmy Little Giant Utley, the tough-as-nails Irishman who operated the clandestine casino nestled inside Florentine Gardens. Utley was a bookmaker, a drug runner, a pimp, and a snitch, and was most commonly known around Los Angeles as the thorn in Mickey Cohen's side. Cohen didn't take kindly to a guy encroaching on his business, especially if said guy had loose lips when the fucking pigs came calling. Mickey Cohen, of course, was LA's preeminent gangster and self-appointed king of the Sunset Strip, the one who employed notorious bagman Johnny Stompanato the guy who met the sharp end of a knife in Lana Turner's house a decade later. Elizabeth Short never got to appear in Hanson's burlesque show, and she never got to find out if knowing a guy who worked alongside Mickey Cohen's arch rival was a good or a bad thing. And whether or not she wanted fame of any kind, she unknowingly became famous, infamous to be exact, when her body turned up in two different pieces in that vacant lot in Lemur Park. It was standard practice for the press to give female murder victims a flowery epithet. And so Elizabeth Short stopped being known as Elizabeth Short and started being referred to as the Black Dahlia. So named because of the black outfits she was partial to wearing, not to mention her hair, which was also dyed black. More than likely, it was a hat tip to the Blue Dahlia, a recent Veronica Lake film noir with a screenplay by Raymond Chandler the renowned crime novelist with a penchant for labyrinthian plots. But even Raymond Chandler could never have written a plot this twisted or imagined a case so mired in corruption and confusion because the Black Dahlia was a clusterfuck of epic proportions. Leslie Duane Dillon's wrist still hurt. It was red and raw. He rubbed it with his other hand to soothe the dull ache. He knew the pain would go away soon, even if the memory of being chained to a radiator in a hotel room would last forever. He knew this was wrong. LAPD had him chained to a heater in a flophouse hotel like a fucking dog. He hadn't even been interrogated by a detective. It was just that psychiatrist, Dr. DeRiver, and another cop, a muscle-bound pig who probably pounded heads more than he pounded pavement. And the whole thing just stunk. Plus, the cops were buying his Jeff Connors story. Dylan knew the guy was real, 
He wasn't some figment of Dylan's imagination, but it was his word against theirs. Besides, pretty soon, the LAPD would get tired of using words altogether and move on to a more universal language. Dylan needed to get the fuck out before Dr. DeRiver set his goon loose on Dylan's skull. He waited until he was once again alone before he finished scribbling on the back of the postcard he'd stolen from the room's desk. His handwriting wasn't perfect, but it would have to do. The message was simple. He was being held by Dr. J. Paul DeRiver at the Strand Hotel in connection with the Black Dahlia murder, and he wanted legal counsel. Now, he had no stamp, no way to get the postcard in the mail, so he did the next best thing. He slid open the window to his room. He took the postcard between his pointer and middle finger and flung it out into the air. It flapped on the wind and landed on the sidewalk. Dylan prayed it would fall into the right hands. And the postcard was recovered, suspiciously perhaps by a reporter for the LA Herald Express, who gave it to his editor. The editor rang up the head of the LAPD's gangster squad and asked why a staff psychiatrist was holding a potential suspect hostage in a hotel room without any formal charges. Dylan's own mother caught wind of the news and with the help of a lawyer, obtained a writ of habeas corpus. Translation, the cops had one day to charge Leslie Dwayne Dillon with something or let him go free. Ultimately, they had to admit that they had nothing on him. On January 12, 1949, the LAPD released their prime suspect in the Black Dahlia murder from custody. But it wasn't just the writ of habeas corpus that got Leslie Dwayne Dillon off the hook. It was something else, and it conveniently happened at the very same time. The LAPD had managed to do the unthinkable. They had found Jeff Connors. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Jeff Connors squirmed in his chair. The one light that shone down on his face was dramatic and hot. It made him nervous, made him feel like he was guilty before he had even opened his mouth. It really was like he'd seen in the movies. He felt like Jean Tierney and Laura. Two flood lamps pointed at her face while a detective asked the tough questions. Unlike Jean Tierney though, who maintained a perfectly composed and perfectly beautiful face throughout her interrogation scene. Jeff Connors could feel the beads of sweat rolling down his cheeks. This wasn't Hollywood. California, yes, 300 miles north of Hollywood, but it might as well have been a world away. LAPD had found him in a gold rush town called Gilroy. The gold in Gilroy had long been rushed, but Connors was just about as shocked to see the cops as they were to see him. The place seemed like a comfortable spot for a person who could have last seen Elizabeth Short alive. And now the LAPD wanted Connors to tell them everything. They wanted details, the truth. They wanted every fucking secret he had to give. So he started talking. First of all, he told them that his real name wasn't Jeff Connors. Shocker. It was actually Arthur Artie Lang Jr. He had done some work as a janitor at Columbia Studios. He said he knew Elizabeth Short by sight, which struck the LAPD as odd, seeing as though Elizabeth hadn't so much as attended one audition on a major studio lot while she lived in LA. He further confessed that he and his then wife, a blonde bombshell named Grace Allen, 
had actually been out drinking at a bar with Elizabeth Short the night before her murder. Every last detail of Lane's story could have added up to a pretty compelling case too, if only any of it had been true. When the cops brought in Lane's now ex-wife to corroborate his story, Grace Allen told them that the guy lived in a fantasy world. He made shit up like he was a regular Charles Dickens. He probably even believed some of it. Grace Allen informed the LAPD that no, her ex had no clue who Elizabeth Short was before she was killed and further, he had worked a shift at Columbia from 2 to 11 p.m. the night of Elizabeth's murder, after which he came straight home. Lane's alibi was not to be fucked with even if he was doing his best to make it seem otherwise. The cops chalked it up to a crazy man talking crazy. On January 14, 1949, the two-year anniversary of Elizabeth Short's murder, the LAPD released Artie Lang from custody. He walked out the front door of the station and was never seen again. Meanwhile, some of those quote-unquote incorruptible cops on the LAPD gangster squad were having a hard time shaking Leslie Dwayne Dillon for more reasons than one. First up, Dillon had launched a lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles to the tune of 100 grand, roughly $1.1 million in 2022 money. He claimed he had been falsely imprisoned when he was held by Dr. DeRiver back in the Strand Hotel, and, well, he wasn't wrong. The city played hardball in its response by threatening to prosecute Dillon for his role in a robbery when he worked as a bellhop in the Santa Monica Hotel. He dropped the lawsuit. But still, Gangster Squad dicks got that unexplainable detective hunch every time they thought about Dylan, so they kept digging. One of the places they visited was the Astor Motel in downtown LA, a strip of 10 concrete cabins where Leslie Dwayne Dillon had previously stayed. There had also been separate eyewitness reports of a guest matching Elizabeth Short's description at the motel. Motel owner Harry Hoffman told the police that on the morning of Elizabeth's body being found, Hoffman walked into one of the recently vacated cabins and found a grisly crime scene. The entire room was bathed in blood and fecal matter, and there wasn't a surface that wasn't covered with gore. It was all over the floor, splattered on the walls. The sheets on the bed were saturated. If a person were to, say, saw a human body in half, the resultant mess might look like this. Hoffman's wife, Clora, typically did the cleaning of cabin rooms between guests, but he wouldn't let her get near this one. Hoffman did the dirty work himself. Hoffman never told police about what he had found. He had his own private reasons. Like some business owners in town, Hoffman had beef with the LAPD in the past. The Aster had a bad rep. The place was cheap, a known spot for prostitution and vice. Hoffman himself was an ex-con. And the fuzz had recently been by to look into how often he raised his hand to his wife. The less attention he could attract to himself and his establishment, the better. A gangster squad officer named Wagoner held up two photos and asked Hoffman if they rang his bell. One was Leslie Dwayne Dillon, the other was Elizabeth Short. Yeah, he'd seen them, both of them. He couldn't remember the day or how long they stayed for. He couldn't remember if they came together or were separate but they had definitely been guests of the motel in the past, that's for sure. What about the other guy, though? Hoffman was doing the asking now. He asked the cop, Wagoner. What other guy, Wagoner responded. He wasn't sure if he was being played, but he was curious. 
The motel owner described a middle-aged man with graying hair and a foreign accent. He checked into the Astor on January 11th, four days before Elizabeth Short's body was discovered. He hung around for a few days. Hoffman even knew his name, Mark Hansen. Mark Hansen, the Florentine Gardens nightclub owner, movie theater owner, and criminal underworld liaison, the one and the same who had been Elizabeth Short's landlord. Hoffman knew that Hansen had, at one point, been considered a suspect, not simply because of all the close contact he had with Elizabeth, including those numerous sexual advances that had been shot down, but because in the days following her murder, a package of Elizabeth Short's belongings had been mailed to the Los Angeles Examiner. The package included her business cards, birth certificate, photographs, and an address book. The front of the address book was embossed with Mark Hansen's name. Mark Hansen knew everybody, and not just the usual suspects either. His connections went deep. Many of them were kept from the LAPD. Artie Lang's ex-wife, Grace Allen, for one, initially failed to reveal that she had stayed with Mark Hansen at his home when she first separated from her husband. The puzzle wasn't complete, but the pieces were starting to come together. Mark Hansen, Leslie Dwayne Dillon, Artie Lang, Grace Allen, the foursome were connected in various ways. And for members of the gangster squad, the fuzzy picture was getting clearer every day. They were closer than they had ever been to solving the murder of the Black Dahlia, a little too close. Within days, the LAPD officially disbanded the gangster squad. Its officers and agents were all reassigned to other duties. To those quote-unquote incorruptible cops, it didn't make any sense. Of course it didn't. It wasn't supposed to make sense. They weren't even supposed to ever figure it out. The only people it likely made any sense to were perched very high up, perhaps at the top of the police department or organized crime or city government, maybe all three. Way up high, out of sight, out of mind. That's where the secrets are, and that's where they'll be kept forever. Mark Hansen died in 1964 of natural causes. Though he remained on the Black Dahlia suspect list his entire life, he was never charged with murder. Neither was Woody Guthrie, who, no shit, found himself one of the many improbable suspects after he wrote steamy sex letters to the sister of a friend in Northern California. In reality, the cops just wanted an excuse to rough up a no-good piece of rabble-rousing commie scum. More than seven decades later, the case of the Black Dahlia remains unsolved, but it has refused to go cold in the public consciousness. In fact, the mystery surrounding Elizabeth Short's brutal murder has only deepened. And every few years, someone new steps forward with a brand new take, hoping to break the case wide open. In 1994, John Gilmore wrote a book called Severed that drew on Gilmore's 1981 interview with an alcoholic named Arnold Smith, AKA Jack Anderson Wilson. Like many other suspects over the years, Arnold Smith appeared to know intimate details that only the murderer would know. He had Gilmore plying with money and booze in exchange for his spilled guts. Tragically, Arnold Smith perished in a house fire before Gilmore could get every last secret. 
Still, the book's conclusion was pretty confident that Smith was the guy. The book was eventually criticized as sleazoid bunk. The Los Angeles Review of Books described Gilmore as, quote, a purveyor of fictional trash about conveniently dead celebrities who are beyond the protection of libel laws, unquote. The same article warned potential readers that they should, quote, put on latex gloves or preferably a hazmat suit before delving into Gilmore's literary legacy, unquote. The publication accused Gilmore of inventing sources like entire LAPD detectives who did not exist and of coming to the conclusion that Arnold Smith was the killer only after Smith conveniently died and could no longer be interrogated. Other theories were published in subsequent years. One ex-cop thought his own father, a doctor, was the killer. Another blamed wise guy, Bugsy Siegel, who allegedly committed the murder at the behest of an LA Times publisher who had gotten Elizabeth Shore pregnant. And there was no irrefutable proof that any of this was remotely true. These claims and more have only served to muddy the waters with conjecture and fantasy, when perhaps one need look no further than the existing muddy waters of rampant police corruption in the 1940s. I haven't even gotten into the complicated story of LAPD Sergeant Finnis Brown, AKA Fat Arse, one of the original lead homicide detectives on the Black Dahlia case. Finnis Brown was just about as corrupt as they came, but he was untouchable. Thanks to an older brother who worked as a powerful commander for the LAPD Patrol Bureau. It's rumored that Brown was in debt to Mark Hansen for upwards of $5,000, which may not sound like a lot, but that's like 58 grand today. It's not outside the realm of possibility that Mark Hansen was involved directly or indirectly in the death of Elizabeth Short, and that the reason he was always kept at arm's length and never formally charged was because he had Finnis Brown and thus the LAPD by the balls. That's the conclusion that author Pew Eatwell drew in her 2017 book, Black Dahlia, Red Rose. And it goes like this. Mark Hansen was pissed that Elizabeth Short wouldn't sleep with him. He wanted her dead. Leslie Dwayne Dillon was one of the guys in Hansen's tangled web who did his dirty work. And so Dillon was either hired by Hansen to kill Elizabeth Short in the most fucked up way possible, or he simply took it upon himself to make her go away and thus make the boss man happy. Maybe Jeff Connors was involved too. They did it at the Astor Hotel where Dylan had been staying. Dylan didn't want the murder coming back on him, so he could have also been the one to send the address book with Hansen's name embossed on the cover to the press as a warning to Hansen. It was a similar play that Dylan made with the LAPD when he was held illegally at the Strand Hotel. Dylan made sure the LAPD knew that he knew all about the department's dirty dealings with Mark Hansen and the Los Angeles Organized Crime Syndicate. In essence, if they squeezed him too hard, he would squeal. Eatwell's theory became even more complicated after she published her book. She heard from a retired cop named Buzz Williams, whose father was an original member of the LAPD gangster squad. According to Williams, he remembers overhearing his father talking with other cops about how Mark Hansen Leslie Dwayne Dillon and Jeff Connors were part of a robbery crew. One of the crew's members would get a gig as a bellboy at a hotel. After he located the safe on site, he would quit the gig, and days later, the gang would knock over the joint. What if Elizabeth Short was murdered, not because she rejected the libidinous advances of Mark Hansen, but because she knew too much about a hush-hush robbery crew? But then, if that were true, then why would Leslie Dwayne Dillon go out of his way to incriminate Jeff Connors if he was part of the gang and thus part of the entire conspiracy. 
Isn't there some honor amongst thieves? Even though this final theory is likely the closest we'll ever get to the truth, it's not perfect. There are still details that don't add up, questions that will never be answered, corruption that will never be completely understood, secrets that will never be revealed. Because Los Angeles is nothing without its secrets. Secrets make for good stories, and those stories, well, they ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.